Again, welcome to True Life Church. That video sink in a little bit? Hopefully it did. I know it was for me um, when I watched it. And I was talking with James here, our drummer here on the front row. I always get to stare at um, every week. And he was talking to me actually this morning, just randomly. Uh, I saw that baseball field out there. And uh, he pitches for the JV um, O'Galley High School team. And so, you know, we often praise God when we're down. It's harder for us to praise God when we're up. And they were losing their first few games. And the team, no one else forcing them to do this. No one else, see, I'm bragging on them right now. The team came together and said, why don't we pray before the games? And they've won the last two, starting with a 7-0 shutout that James pitched. Now, James, you're not going to win every game because you pray. But you will win in life because you honor him. And so that's, that's the game that matters, and I wish more of us in our world were playing it. So for today and the next week, I'm really excited because I get to talk about something that's passionate in my heart, and that's worship. It's just a part A and a part B series, and it's something we haven't really talked about much in our last year or so. We, we've talked about David and Goliath and the giants in our lives. We've talked about persevering and what goes on in the, in the parable of the sower and the seed. And of course, we talked about Christmas um, but we haven't really necessarily sat down and had a good conversation about worship and why worship is important and why we do what we do, why we gather in this place, why we're renovating it, and what should be going on in our lives through the week. So today is kind of the part A to set up next week, which is part B, and I'll go ahead and give you kind of a quick overview of that because you know, I hope you're not going to want to miss that. That's about an overflow, and I'll describe that when we get there, but you're, you should be overflowing in a direction in worship. And there's three possible outcomes that each one of us have a choice every single day to take. And a lot of us choose one choice that cancels out the other two. So we'll be talking about that next week. But today, we get to dive in. And I'm excited about it because it's worship. I've been a worship leader um, vocationally now for the past 12 years. And I started playing piano in church when I was 10, 10, 11 years old. And so this has been a big part of, of who I am and my identity, I guess, in and with Christ. So I'm excited about it. I hope you're excited uh, with me to talk about um, worship and why it's important. One of the things I was going through is, is finding out the Temple of Solomon. You guys, you can go back into First Kings, and it's, uh, it's actually, they spend four chapters just on the Temple and how it was built, the preparations for it, the building of the Temple, and then the dedication of the Temple. And this took a long time under the reign of, of Solomon. If you know Solomon, he's the son of David. David, stone slinger, giant slayer. That's David. His son Solomon took over for him as king after David um, died. And so to put this in perspective, we're going to be talking about some geographical locations. And so I want to invite you to turn on that part of your brain that says, I'm going to daydream through Josh's sermon. Turn that part of your brain on, and I want to actually... See if you can set that part of your brain on a mission to focus on envisioning or imagining what this would look like at this temple that Solomon built for the Lord. Now, this is in Jerusalem. It's all on this place called Mount Moriah. And that will be even more important for us on Easter. I'm not going to give that away yet. But Mount Moriah, that's the, the place where Jerusalem, that's the main hill that Jerusalem, the city, sits on. And the temple's at the tallest part of this region around Mount Moriah. And so to put this in perspective we got to have some measurements. Now, today we use the metric system or English system for 
lengths. A lot of us use feet, centimeters, inches, and things like that. When Preston and I were building our stage, we're marking this off, and like we, use, it's, we can have this measuring tape. Well, they didn't have that measure, measuring tape um, a long, long time ago. They had this thing called a cubit. And this is what makes it really interesting, because depending on what translation you're looking at, what culture you're looking at, or what even time frame of the same culture you're looking at, that cubit had a slightly different length. We're going to average it out to 18 inches. Well, how long is 18 inches? How did they come up with this? And it's the distance from the normal-sized man's, this is how inaccurate it was, from the normal-sized man's elbow up to here. So, I'm sorry, Gator fans, if you're not opposed to this, but if you do this FSU Seminole shop like this, there's your cubit, all right? That's your 18 18 inches. They didn't have the measuring tape. So you can go back and look at Noah, and Noah is building things. You said the ark was this many cubits by this, and the walls around Jerusalem was this many cubits, and this temple was cubit. So it had to look like some weird version of... This had to be how the Macarena was invented. Because imagine, like, well, what is this, right? And, and, then, and then do this, and then, like, they're crawling. I, don't, I have no idea how they did this crab Macarena. You know, like, I don't know how they did it. But they're going, just imagine a bunch of guys going around elbow to elbow. Well, my elbow is longer than yours. Let's go by yours. Okay, uh, no compensating for anything. And, and we, so we have all these cubits just going on to try to measure things. But I want to give you the dimension in cubits, and then I'll give you... Uh, the feet translation, so we can get an idea of what this is. So the temple that Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long. So that's 90, 90 feet, all right? It's 20 cubits wide, it's 30 feet. To put that into perspective, this wall, the wall here is 28 foot 5 inches. Preston, I don't know that very well now. But it's almost this, it's almost this width. This is 30 feet, this is 28 feet. So you can imagine that this is the width of the temple that Solomon built for the Lord. It's double this length. So imagine two of these rooms, plop, plop, that's the length. And it's three times this height. It gets up to 45 feet high. Okay, so imagine this room doubled and then stack, 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 like a bunch of Legos. So I want to put that into perspective. And inside this temple, it was just amazing. It was immaculate. It was glorious. They had these giant cherubim and the Holy of Holies divided up into three place where we have the Holy of Holies at one end, and then you go down steps, and then you have this larger area of the temple, and then you go down more steps, and then you go outside. And so we're going to work our way up. So here's the Holy of Holies. It was a perfect cube, 15 foot, 15 foot, perfect cube. And inside this cube were these giant like lion angels called cherubim with their wings spread out, touching tip to tip, and underneath that was the Ark of the Covenant. And these were all plated in gold. Inside of the walls was the finest cedar that he had. Solomon had imported and finest craftsmen come in to line these walls with cedar. After the best wood was put in, they put in the other best, gold. Layered it all with shining radiant gold. Covered in designs of angels and flowers and palm trees. I think, you know, if DIY type of um, Solomon really had his thing for flowers and palm trees. Because it says they were on the walls, they were on the doors, they were on the back. Like... Angels, flowers, and palm trees everywhere covered in gold. This place was amazing. All right, so we got that part of our brains turned on. We can kind of get this, what this looked like. Now, in this original temple that Solomon built, you have the Holy of Holies, and you go down to the larger area. Kind of like this little stage, except much, much higher. But there was a wall there, a solid wall separating the main temple area from the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. So I want you to put that in perspective 
for what we're going to talk about today. Who knows who wrote the Psalms? Anybody? David, some. David was actually only attributed to be the writer of only 73 of the 150 Psalms. It was actually in here, we were at the men's conference, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, but they actually brought this exact thing. I'm like, he's, he's read my message already, that little, that little thief. It was a great time at the men's conference anyway. But, um, so it was 73 psalms written by David that is accredited to. And then these other guys wrote psalms that we can read. And, and it's the family of Asaph and the sons of Korah and, and He-Man, not the superhero, um, Moses and this guy named Ethan, who was supposedly very wise, but he even goes into the Bible said that the psalm was even wiser than that guy Ethan. So Solomon must have been, I guess, really wise because Ethan was already wise. And then this guy Solomon we're talking about is accredited to writing two of the psalms, Psalm 72 and 127. And I want us to read the first verse out of 127. And if you're looking, anticipating something to be on screen, it won't today, I'm sorry. So I encourage you, uh, to pull out the, the Bible on your phone, uh, if you would like, or we have some out in the open, uh, our welcome area. You can just grab one. If you have a Bible, you can just take it with you. But I invite you to turn with me. We're going to just look at one verse, the first verse in Psalm 127. And this is written by Solomon. And I think it was during the building of the temple. And this is why what he did was important, because this is how it matters. And he writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. That's it. That's what I want us to hear. I want to read it again. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. And so as we're doing things here at True Life Church, and you come in every week, and oh, the ceiling's gone, and oh, now it's painted, and now there's carpet, and now there's a stage. Why do we have, why is the church have a barn door? Why are we doing some things like this? Because it's the who we're doing it for, not the What? Solomon understood that God was a glorious, magnificent God worthy of praise and that he deserved a place that was holy and sacred. And that's why we're doing some of the things here at True Life Church. That's why the roof is black because we want to feel like it just keeps going up like that temple. Okay, that's where we're, like rustic wood, it was in the temple that Solomon built. Again, at that men's conference, we uh, had a couple guys go to this past week at First Baptist Church and they had a couple great speakers. One of them was um, uh, this guy that was in Black Hawk Down. He was an actual soldier, uh, Jeff Strucker, who drove the Humvee column, and he talked Friday night. And then we had Saturday morning sessions and breakout things all the way through lunch. Um, and uh, they had Dr. David Youth from First Baptist Church of Orlando come and be the guest speaker for Saturday. And I'll tell you what, one of those entire sessions was just on worship. And if you've ever been in a room with about 450 guys singing, it's something, it's something else. I'll tell you what, it was, it was something else, and it was a great time. And one of the things that Dr. David Youth said in the time about worship, and I'm going to quote him on this, you don't worship because your life is good. You worship because your God is good. And so you could be in a really tough time this morning, or a really hard spot in your life. And like we talked about earlier, it's really easy to find God when you're down. And then life gets better. And guess what? You put him away again. And then you get down. And life gets better. And you put him away again. What I want us to encourage you to do over the next two weeks is find God every day, up or down. Because you don't worship because your life is good. You worship because your God is good. Now, this temple we've been talking about was destroyed. 
an invasion by the Babylonians, and the Israelites were taken into captivity. We're going to dive into this little small book called Haggai. I'm going to say Haggai. Yeah, fun little small book. Yeah. Josh didn't mark, and I'll miss it. It's that small. It's two chapters. 787. There we go. I knew that. All right, let's all find it together. Let me know when you found it. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and then Haggai. These three little books there stuffed in before Zechariah. All right, everyone there? If you turn it, you found it. All right, Haggai, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read this because this is talking about the temple. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It said, Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judea, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? I almost want to say, God, how does it look to you now? Because your temple that you built, because you weren't faithful, is now destroyed. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come and, I, and fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Whatever's in it, it's mine anyway. I made it, so don't make it all fancy. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, in the Hebrew translation, direct from the Hebrew of that last verse, verse 9. I want you to hear this because it's slightly different if you're leading, reading along in the NIV or the ESV or some of these modern translations. The Hebrew translates as this. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. And it's just a little bit different, just enough different for us to understand that whatever's coming next, when the earth is shaken, will be better than what's here now. So when this temple goes away, and all this gold, and the cherubim, and the Ark of the Covenant, and you're enslaved, and in captivity, when that all gets destroyed, another temple, when the earth is shaken, will be built, and it will be much, much better than what you thought you had. Now, the Israelites were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And then they were able to go back into Jerusalem. We're not going to talk about all of that today, so here's the Cliff Notes version. And the wall around Jerusalem was built by Nehemiah, and finally, the temple was rebuilt after Babylonian captivity, though the Israelites were actually still in captivity, technically, by the Medes and the Persians, and later the Syrians, and then the Romans. They were just living there and allowed to kind of do-ish what they wanted to, to rebuild the temple. Now, the temple was rebuilt as the same dimensions as Solomon's temple, but it's not the same. Just building something the way you think it was, or the way that it was still burnt, this says there were still burned out bricks and stuff. They could still see where the outline of the temple was when it was destroyed. So they're like, well, it goes here, and then there was this altar here, and then they usually went to the Holy of Holies and all that kind of stuff. So when they rebuilt this, 
it wasn't the same. And how do we know that? We actually go into the Hebrew Babylonian Talmud, the, basically the history written down aside of the historical side of not the Bible, just kind of saying this happened and this happened and this happened. And we go back and read what was written back then. And then the words of the Israelites, they said the temple lacked the Shekinah, which is the divine presence of God. And it also lacked the Ruach HaKodesh, which is the spirit of holiness. So they've rebuilt these walls, but guess who's not there? God's presence is no longer there. And they know it. They are going through the motions. Another thing that was said at that men's conference is, you can fake this. You can fake it. You can come into church. You can stand here. You can act like you're being faithful and just being here. But that's not faithful. That's not worshiping the Lord day after day. That's not examining this and allowing him to work in this. You can go through these motions. You can come here and we can play songs and we can sing songs and we can watch videos and we can go home and we have a great day. But at some point in time, we have to ask ourselves, are we just going through the motions or is this for a greater purpose? So the Hebrews knew that God was not the same in this place as it was before. One of the other things that was majorly different is that when they rebuilt the temple to Solomon's specifications, they did not build back in that wall that separated the Holy of Holies to the rest of the temple and then outside. They put in a curtain, which is a veil, right? And the word veil in Hebrew translates as a separator, something to divide. And this curtain was 50, remember it was a perfect cube, it was a 15-foot high curtain, 15-foot wide curtain, 4-inch thick curtain. I want us to, again, have that part of our brains thinking about it. Now, Herod, in the first century before Christ, he makes improvements. He's really into big building stuff. Maybe he's watched Fixer Upper um, with Shiplap, and he's just really into that. And he just wants to keep building and building and building. So they go nuts, expanding this temple. And he brings Greeks in to improve the temple. And he brings Romans in to improve the temple. And you know what all those people have in common? They don't know God. And they're the ones working on improving the temple. And so they make all these outer courts that didn't used to be there. Okay? And in this largest court, which is called the Court of Women, and women weren't allowed to go further into certain areas of the temple, so it was called the Court of Women. But basically that's where all the, the women and some of the men and some of the Nazarenes who had to force to get haircuts and some other things, that's where they were all allowed to congregate, the lepers, the lame, the blind, to call out for help because this was where everybody was. Everyone was in this large area called the Court of Women, and this is where everything went down. This is where business happened, and this is where things started to get a little different because in order to make all these improvements, who's going to pay for that? The people, right? So they jacked up the taxes, and they jacked up the temple taxes. And so the priests are now going around, and this is, you'll understand now why Jesus gets furious in this area of the temple, the court of women. And this is where he turns over the tables later because now you have all these priests going around saying, well, what, what's your sin? And they tell him your sin. Uh, that'll be two doves. Uh, here you go. Uh, what's your sin? Oh, that'll be a sheep. You're going to have to sacrifice a sheep for that. And it gets so twisted. And they had these trumpet, these large brass metal things that you'd hear Clink, 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 The coins going down into this reservoir. And so when we hear stories about these la- the lady that gave her two coins, it was worth more to 
Jesus than no matter any type of other coin that someone put in? Because you'd be able to hear the clink, 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 clink going down. So the big money givers, the wealthy people would come and be like, yeah, pa-pling! And they would stand there like, yeah, look what I just did. And you've got lame beggar people going, clink-clink. And it became this real twisted, upside-down thing. That's one of the reasons we're not taking an offering today. Just put it in the box and do it. That's between you and God. Put it in the box. And there's no clink. It's lined with carpet on the bottom. Okay? So that's why Jesus gets really upset with some of these things going on in this temple. Not the way they should be. And this temple, that we're actually now talking about the second temple, or Herod's temple, would be changed and also destroyed yet again. But going back to that prophecy in Haggai, there was no earthquake mentioned in this second temple or when the Babylonians invaded and destroyed the first one. So what other temple could this prophecy be talking about? What other prophecy could make sense with this? Well, on the same hills of Mount Moriah, this is in Jerusalem again, you have the temple and the door facing east. Then you have the lower city south of that. You have the Garden of Gethsemane off to the east outside. Jerusalem come down to this hill and then go back up to Mount Moriah. And then on the west side, you have this small little hill. And that small little hill was by this main road that went out of town. And on this hill, criminals were crucified on display for all to see to be an example for people going in and leaving this city. And this road was called the Via Dolorosa. And this hill is called Golgotha, place of the skull or Calvary. And so I want you to think about this because when Jesus is on the cross, do you know what he's looking at? He's looking at the temple. And on his night when he was betrayed, he's, on, he's going on one side. You have Gethsemane on one side, betrayed in sin. Then the court where he was tried is literally almost right next door to the wall of this temple. And then he's taken over here to be killed. And underneath that hill, they didn't want to carry dead bodies too far. Guess where the tombs were? They're like right underneath that hill. So Jesus' body is in place under that. Three days later, he rises from the dead. So Jesus is literally going from one side of this temple in these last three days of his life all the way to the other side, dying and then raising to life. Now, why is that important? Because if you're looking at Jesus being crucified, do you know what you have your back to? The temple. If you're looking at Jesus on a hill being crucified, you had to turn your back to the temple. Turn with me to Mark if you got your word. Turn with me to Mark chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 21 through 39. 21 through 39. I know it's before Easter, but I love it. It says, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, so we know who he's talking about because I'm sure there was a lot of guys named Simon back then. He was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, why was he passing by? He's taking that main road in and out. He's coming by like, man, this guy's dying. He needs some help. You're going to carry the cross for him. So he probably does an about face and goes back out the other way to help Jesus carry this cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha. There we see it, which means the place of the skull, where the dead people are. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. 
dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. You see what they're mad about? They don't want that temple to be destroyed. You know what had to be going through Jesus' mind? That's exactly what I'm here to do. You don't even realize it. Your back is facing what you should be having your back to. You should be looking this way because I'm exactly here. That's why I'm here, is to tear down this temple and blow your minds. Here, let's keep going. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe, mocking him. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now here's where things start to get interesting. Verse 33. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Verse 38. Read this with me. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. That curtain was torn because there was a giant earthquake. You can read about it in the other Gospels. There was this giant earthquake that ripped this curtain, this veil, this separator between God and the Holy of Holies and us out here, this separator, this divider was torn. Not from bottom to top so that man could rip this 15-foot curtain, 4-inch thick curtain. No, it was torn from top to bottom. And that was so that you knew he did it. Not man. Not anyone else. So this curtain is torn. And basically, I want you to think, as Jesus dies physically on this cross, he... Lives, comes That temple is no longer about the building. It's about the hearts that now have access for the first time to this holy of holies, to worship in presence with God, living, breathing in our lives. Now Jesus' death and resurrection calls us to worship, to honor Him the way we should, to allow His holiness to change the way we live our lives. There is no more separator, no more boundary between you and him. It's gone. He took care of that. Romans eight thirty eight and 39 says, For I am convinced, Paul's convinced here in writing Romans, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to, here it is, separate us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. And if you need a memory verse this week, I hope that's it for you. Jesus made the way possible for you to become the temple, the dwelling place of the Lord Most High. Remember we were talking earlier about uh, Solomon building his temple there in 1 Kings. I actually want to read something here. This is actually found in 1 Kings chapter 9, one of the many chapters where they talk about building uh, the temple. And then Solomon has a really long prayer of dedication. And we'll skip ahead to 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. Just these first few verses. I want you to hear this. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, and it achieved all he desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. See, when, when Solomon made this place sacred, God shows up. Even in the cloud, it says, when they brought the ark into this place, this cloud inhabited that perfect cube of the Holy of Holies. God's presence manifests in that place. And what he's saying for us to now, because it's not about the temple, these walls aren't lined with cedar and gold. We don't have giant, scary, awesome-looking cherubim wingtip to wingtip in this place. And there's not a thousand steps going into these smaller and smaller rooms into the Holy of Holies. Those were the days of old. But if we take this and apply it to now, today, the Old Testament, with the new, when we allow Jesus to live in, to make this place, make this place, make this place a special place for God to dwell, do you know who shows up? He shows up. When we prepare the place for Jesus, He will inhabit it. When we allow Him to work in our lives, He will. When we open up our hearts for him to come and take out the junk, take out the past, he will do it. That's what he said he will. And when you allow the what things of this building and these rooms and this worship space, the what things of your heart and life to be sacred, the who shows up. And in this building, it's not always about how many people show up for worship. It's about who is prepared their heart to worship. And when we come together as a body of Christ, as many combined little temples of the Lord, do you know what that makes? It makes a much bigger temple. More room, more space for God to inhabit and change our lives, to break open our worlds and move us to a much better place than we thought when we worship Him. When we allow a bigger place for God to move and breathe in our lives, simply because We've given God more space. He will be God in our lives. Probably heard of this guy named Moses. Anyone? Maybe not? Moses? Okay, all right, I'm just making sure we're still awake. Maybe that, you know, daydream part of Josh's sermon brain is still ticking away over there. Like, what's a cubit again? So maybe you've heard of this guy named Moses, you know, who's out of Israelites. And so Moses was born, raised floated down a little basket, was saved by Pharaoh's family, raised in royalty, even as a Hebrew. Eventually he gets to this point, he doesn't like how his people are treated. He gets real nasty toward a few Egyptians, and they give him the boot out. So he runs away, runs away for a long, long time. Up to this area, finds this lady, marries her father-in-law. He's a sheep farmer, 
And Moses just becomes this shepherd. He's hiding for fear of his life from all these Egyptians that they're for some reason going to track him down in the middle of nowhere for hurting one Egyptian soldier. Okay, So he's run away. He's just scared. He's definitely pulled up the, the small boy pants, and he's run away with his tail between his legs. Now turn with me if you've you got your word out again. We're going to Exodus, bouncing all the way to Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. Second book of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus. So you can just kind of start and flip a few pages in. And presto, there you are. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now you've probably heard this story again, but I want us to think about it in a new perspective of worship. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he, fled, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was lit on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, calls his name twice. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. You see, Moses ran away, and we're going to stop there. Moses ran away from Egypt, tried to hide from God, picked up this kind of ulterior life. Maybe no one will find me here. Maybe I won't own up to my identity. Maybe I've got a lot of baggage that I just don't want anyone to know about. I'm going to try to leave that all behind. And Moses runs away. And he picks up this sheep herding thing. This was royalty guy. Now he's pretty much lowest of the low, farming sheep for his father-in-law, right? Going around. That, that's got to be super exciting. But he sees this wonderful sight, and he goes back in there. And he looks at this bush. God speaks to him out of this burning bush. And because God is there, you know what the place becomes? Holy. Do you think God's here this morning? So then this place is holy. I'm going to ask the band to come back up here in a minute, but as they're doing so, I want you to get uncomfortable with me. I want you to get uncomfortable with me. I listened to a sermon when I was growing up. I was talking about uh, being 10 or so, playing piano in church. And one of those Sundays, we had a guest pastor, and he came, and he said... uh, he talked a lot longer on Exodus than I did. And he says, you know what, wouldn't it be something if for one minute of one day we recognize that this place was holy just like Moses did? I'm going to invite you to get into that uncomfortability spot with me right now. Let's take off our shoes. For the place where you are standing, if God is here, this place is holy ground. Now, this is probably out of your comfort zone. And you can blame me for the smell later. I'll take that. But I want you to get uncomfortable with me as we sing this last song. We're gonna, I'm going to invite you to stand. And just let, if you feel the carpet, if you've got flip-flops or socks on or something, you take those off. You feel that carpet between your toes. Let that be a reminder as we just sing this closing song. That the place where you are standing is holy ground. Not because of anything that you or I have done, but because of what he has done. Not because 
This is the temple that we've built for the Lord. But this is the temple that he's already created that he should be inhabiting and dwelling in. These walls aren't lined with gold, but we can give him the best of the best of ourselves and worship the Lord Almighty who tore that separator in two, broke down the barriers from us knowing him. So I'm going to invite you to stand and the band to come up. We're going to just close with a, a new song. And it's called, Look Upon the Lord, Seated High, for He is Holy. And one of the verses in there might be a little confusing, but again, I want to explain that, because remember we talked about in those Holy of Holies, when the Ark of the Covenant came in, and God was in there, and inhabited that place. We talked about that cloud being there. And we're going to read some, some lyrics in here. Let the glory of our God from heaven come down. Let the house of the Lord be filled with the cloud. And I hope that makes sense for you and me this morning, that in this place, in this time, this cloud, this cloud of witnesses is why it's called that later in the New Testament, because all these temples come up, we are that. God is here, and he should dwell in us. So let's give him the glory as we close in worship.